This week's episode is brought to you by Communicore Weekly, The Musical. It's probably the best 45 minutes you will ever experience in your life. Pick it up on iTunes, Amazon, and CD Baby. Welcome to season three. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And thanks to everyone who came out to the Meistat 11th anniversary weekend uh, a couple weekends ago and coming out to say hello to everyone and meeting me. I met a lot of really cool cadets, which was awesome. I was very happy about that. I gave out a lot of buttons. We had a good time. I wore a dress. I mean, it was a really good weekend. So Yeah, I saw the photos. I saw the photos of you in the dress. You, you sound like you're not overly thrilled by... Oh, yay, I saw the photos of you in a dress. Thanks, George. You made me feel a lot better and secure about myself by saying it that way. Thanks a lot. Uh, did they call you Vanna Humbuck? Um, no, they actually called Humbucker? me Mrs. Heimbuck during the course of the game Mrs. show, but I was so, the Vanna White. So did you keep looking for your mom whenever they said that? Uh, I, 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 at first I did, too. I kind of looked over my shoulder like, who who is he talking about? But he was referring to me. <laughs> Sadly, I would like to report that I lost the bet or something. However, it was my idea to wear that dress as the game show hostess. So kind of hilarious. Also, not the first time I wore a dress. Probably not the last time. Um Wow, this is Communicore Weekly. got deep. We got true really con- deep. True confessions. True, true Communicore confessions true. <laughs> with, with Jeff and George. And Before I, this I gets kind of crazy, maybe we should stop. I think we should just jump into the history. Okay, let, let's do that. It's time for Disney History. Shortly after the opening and success of Walt Disney World in Florida, uh, the Walt Disney Company decided that building a theme park in another country would be a fantastic idea. Now, I can see to- it. Yeah. What? I can see it being a great idea. No, of course, sure. of course. Sure. So, uh, Tokyo Disneyland, it opened in 1983, obviously to a huge success, and that kind of set the stage for international expansion of uh, Disney theme parks. So, in late 1984, uh, the heads of Disney's theme park division, being Dick Nunes and Jim Cora, uh, they came up with a list of 1,200 possible European locations for a new park. And by the end of March of 1985, the number of possible locations for a park had been reduced to four, two in France and two in Spain. Now, both nations saw the potential economic advantage of a Disney theme park, and they both offered uh, complete financing deals to Disney to try to get them to come to them. I didn't know there were 1,200 sites in Europe. That's a lot of sites. Wow. That's like more sites that are on the internet. Yeah, I would imagine. Okay. Well, while both Spanish sites offered a climate similar to that of the stateside parks, Disney had more interest in the French locations. Uh, One was eliminated due to apparently uh, shallow bedrock, uh, making construction too difficult. So the second, it's a site in the rural town of Marne-la-Vallée, was chosen because of its proximity to Paris and its central location in Western Europe. 
Now, Michael Eisner, our old BFF and uh, Disney CEO at the time, <laughs> he, uh, he actually signed the first letter of agreement with the French government for the 4,940-acre site in December 1985, and the first financial contracts were drawn up the following spring. But by March 1987, the final contract was signed by the leaders of the Walt Disney Company and the French government, and construction actually began in August 1988. So, much like they had done in the past with Walt Disney World, they opened a preview center called Espace Euro Disney to help get people excited for what was at the time known as Euro Disneyland. Uh, in fact, excitement was so high that plans for a second gate uh, right next to Euro Disneyland were already being drawn up. And this park would have been called the Disney MGM Studios Europe. They're so clever with their names, it's, aren't the they? The naming convention is yeah. amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Un unbelievable. So, <laughs> much like they did with Walt Disney World, they wanted to be able to control the hotel business around the entire resort. So, it was decided that uh, 5,200 Disney-owned hotel rooms would be built within the complex itself. Um, so, in March 1998, Disney and a council of architects, including uh, Frank Gehrke, Michael Graves, Robert Stern, uh, Stanley Tigerman, and, and Robert Venturi, uh, they decided on an exclusively American theme in which each hotel would depict a different region of the United States. And by the time the resort opened in April 1992, seven hotels housing 5,800 rooms had been built on the side of the resort. That's a lot mm. of rooms. Yeah, especially... <laughs> Designed for an American theme. I mean, how pretentious. Yeah, really. Jeez. How pretentious. So, well, of course, it's all based on Tokyo Disneyland. Yes, obviously. Wanting that American experience. Okay, well, so, of course, it would not be a Disney theme park without some controversy. Oh, got to have that. The entire idea of building a Disney theme park in France was a pretty hot topic. Many critics, uh, including prominent French intellectuals, hated the idea of what they considered to be the cultural imperialism of Euro Disney. They they felt it would encourage France to take on what they considered to be an unhealthy American type of consumerism. For others, Euro Disney became a sort of symbol of America within the heart of France. And in June 1992, a group of French farmers blockaded Euro Disney in protest of farm policy supported at the time by the United States. So, of course, it just kind of got much worse from there. Um, a journalist for a prominent French newspaper, uh, Le Figaro, he wrote, I wish with all my heart that the rebels would set fire to Euro Disneyland. Now, I said that really sweetly, like someone would say in a <laughs> Disney movie, but it's really not that sweet. Um, there was a Parisian stage director, and he he named the park a cultural uh, Chernobyl, which, yeah. it, it, to me, it's funny, but it's not at the same time. It's really <laughs> terrible. Um, ironically enough, that that phrase would be repeated for many years to come um, by the media during Euro Disney's initial years um, because of its uh, you know pretty much failure. Um, but there were a lot of other things that didn't like, such as Disney's American managers requiring English to be spoken in all their meetings, and <laughs> Disney's appearance code for the cast members. Oh, yeah, fun. Well, you know, regardless of all, all of these issues, Euro Disney opened for employee preview and testing in March of 1992. And during this time, guests were mostly the cast members and their families uh, testing the facilities and operations. Press were not allowed to attend to the day until the day before opening day. Uh, speaking of which, opening day was April 12, 1992. Uh, Euro Disney Resort and its theme park, Euro Disneyland, officially opened on those dates. So much like uh, with the opening of Disneyland in 1955, guests were warned of chaos on the roads, and a government survey indicated that half a million people carried by 90,000 cars might attempt to enter the complex. Uh, 
However, by midday, the car park was only about half full, suggesting uh, an attendance level below 25,000 people. And many people assumed that people were taking the advice to stay away due to traffic seriously, and, and also that a railway, railway, railway strike prevented people from getting there. But you know, beyond that, the, the park did not do so well. Due to the European recession that August, the park faced financial difficulties as there was a, a lack of things to do and an overabundance of hotels leading to serious underperformance. Now, in May 1992, Entertainment Magazine, The Hollywood, uh, Hollywood Reporter, reported that about 25% of Euro Disney's workforce, which was about 3,000 people, they had resigned from their jobs because of unacceptable working conditions. You know, it was also reported that the park's attendance was well, well below what was expected. Um, however, the disappointing attendance can at least be partially explained by the recession and the increased unemployment which was affecting France and most of the world at that time. Um, so, when the ambitious construction of the resort began, the economy was still on an upswing. So, they just assumed it would continue to be on an upswing. Clearly, mm -hmm. they were wrong. <laughs> uh, so, Euro Disney responded in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, claiming that only a thousand people had actually left their jobs. And, you know, however, in response to the financial situation, Disney ordered that the Disney MGM Studios Europe, again, great name, but they ordered that that project <laughs> would be put on hiatus until a further decision could be made. And um, prices at all the hotels and even ticket prices, they were reduced as well to try to draw people back into the park boy imagine how worse it would have been if they would have introduced my magic plus oh boy <laughs> oh let's not even think about my magic plus in 1992 oh no no let's jump on aol and check kids okay so despite all these efforts uh, by may of 1992 daily park attendance was around 25,000 instead of the predicted 60,000 the euro disney company stock price spiraled downwards and uh, July 23rd, 1992, Euro Disney announced an expected net loss in its first year of operation of approximately 300 million French francs. Uh, during Euro Disney's first winter, hotel occupancy was so low that they decided to close the Newport Bay Club Hotel during the season. And initial hopes were that each visitor would spend around $33 per day, but near the end of 1992, it was determined that they were spending much less. Efforts to improve attendance, including serving alcoholic beverages with meals inside Euro Disneyland, since uh, it was a cultural thing for them to do there. Now, by the next summer, the park opened a new Indiana Jones roller coaster ride. However, dun, 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 yes, with that music, dun, you would feel it's exciting. Oh, but it wasn't. Sorry, I, you said Indiana Jones. I got it. You, you got excited. I understand. Yeah, we all okay, do. Okay. Um, the problem was, a few weeks after the ride opened, there were a lot of problems with the emergency brakes, and that resulted in a lot of guest injuries. So, the ride was shut down for a, a period of time so that uh, safety investigations could be conducted. That certainly did not help the park's image at all. Um, but by 1994, due to financial difficulties within the company and poor performance of the park, there were a lot of rumors that Euro Disney was uh, getting close to having to declare bankruptcy. And the banks and the backers had meetings, they tried to work out some of these problems involving the financial problems, and blah blah blah. But in March 1994, Disney went into negotiations with the banks so they can try to get some help for their debt. And as a last resort, the Walt Disney Company threatened to close the park, leaving the banks with the land and not getting any of their money made back. Yeah, okay. Talk about an abandoned theme park. Yep. Jeez. Okay, so in January of 1994, Sanford Litvak, uh, an attorney from New York City and former U.S. Assistant Attorney General, was assigned to be Disney's lead negotiator regarding Euro Disney's future. Uh, in February of 94, Litvak made an offer uh, without the consent of Michael Eisner or Frank Wells 
to split the debts between Euro Disney's creditors and Disney. After the bank showed interest, Litvak informed Eisner and Wells, uh, who were not too pleased, but they really had no choice at this point in time. And on March 14th, 1994, the day before the annual shareholders meeting, the banks succumbed to Disney's demands. Dun, dun, dun. Just made it really dramatic. Uh, we have to. We got to. <laughs> so the creditor banks bought $50 million worth of Euro Disney shares, and they forgave 18 months of interest and deferred interest payments for the next three years. Uh, Disney invested $750 million into Euro Disney and granted a five-year suspension of royalty payments. Uh, in June that same year, uh, Saudi Arabian prince Al-Ulid bin al-Saud, he cut a deal where the Walt Disney Company bought 51% of a new $1.1 billion share issue, with the rest being offered to existing shareholders at below market rates, with the prince buying any that were not taken up by the existing shareholders up to a 24.5% holding. Thankfully, from there, things started to woke up a little bit. Yeah, there were too many numbers in that Way too many numbers. Way section. too many numbers. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've hit May of 1995, and a new attraction opened at the theme park. Space Mountain, De La Terre a la Lune, had been planned since the inception of Rio Disneyland under the name Discovery Mountain, but was reserved uh, for a revival of public interest. The, the attraction premiered as Space Mountain at the Walt Disney World Resort's Magic Kingdom in 1975, so it was redesigned for Euro Disneyland to include a cannon launch system, inversions, and an on-ride soundtrack. The $100 million attraction was dedicated in a ceremony attended by celebrities such as Elton John, Claudia Schiffer, and astronaut Buzz Aldrin. And one of those three makes sense. Yes, only one of them makes sense. Which should be Claudia Schiffer because he's uh, the one obviously. I want to look at. Well, duh, I mean, that's who I would have picked. I mean, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, right. in July 1995, Euro Disney reported its first ever quarterly profit of $35.3 million. Way to go, guys. It only took you a couple of years. <laughs> Uh, in November 1995, the, the results for the fiscal year ending in September were released. And in one year, the theme park's attendance had climbed from 8.8 million to 10.7 million, which was an increase of 21%. Uh, also, hotel occupancy had climbed from 60% to 68.5%. So after debt payments, Disneyland Paris ended the year with a net profit of $22.8 million. Good job, wow. guys. And was that slightly less than Eisner's bonus? Probably much less. Probably much less. So, okay. Well, as of 2002, Euro Disneyland underwent a name change to Disneyland Resort Paris to better help, uh, you know, get away from their old image and into a new one. However, the park still incurred a net loss in the three years following the name change. Uh, and in January 2005, they launched a new marketing plan to bring new first-time European visitors to the resort. Um, <laughs> come visit Disneyland Paris. It does not stink. Please, um, it's fun. Boy, we have really bad French accents. We're terrible French accents. I'm uh, sorry. We actually, most accents we do are pretty bad. Okay, that's but fair. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> okay, so by the end of that year, 2002, the Walt Disney Company had, had agreed to write off all debt that the park owed to the Walt Disney Company itself. And this same year, having been open fewer than 15 years, Disneyland Paris had become the number one tourist destination for Europe, outselling the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower. Go figure, Because right? they should have renamed it the Eiffel Tower of Terror. Ooh, see, I would go on it more that would often awesome. then. Mm. That would have been awesome. So new advertising campaigns and deals with the railways made it much easier for the resort to continue to turn a profit. Uh, in fact, in 2007, the resort had a 12% increase in revenue. 
By August 2008, the resort brought in its 20 millionth visitor and made for the third consecutive year of growth in revenues for the resort with a record of 15.3 million visitors in attendance. Um, so despite the resort's financial hardships, it has generated 37 billion euros in tourism-related revenues over 20 years and it supports on average 55,000 jobs in France annually. Um, I haven't been there. I want to go. Yep. We should I go. Think, I think we need to do a commuter tour to there. I'd be totally okay with that idea. People should pay okay. us to go, though, so we can cover some more of the attractions there. That's what That's I think. That's true. That's true. I mean, we're not asking for much. We're just asking you for no. plane tickets and lodging and tickets to Disneyland Paris. Yeah, I mean, and food. And food. Oh, yeah, food's important, too. I forgot about uh, that. Souvenirs. Souvenir money's good. I guess I travel money also. Money. Got some yeah, travel money in there. I mean, all that other stuff. You know, we'll probably need to take, like, a hot spot and some other yeah, that's things true. to We're live those too. This bill's adding up. But if you want to sponsor us, I mean, uh, just send us an email, and we'd sure. like to go. Yeah, we'll do it. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, so this week's book is Moose, Chapters from My Life, uh, written by Robert B. Sherman and edited by his son, Robert J. Sherman. And Jeff and I both got review copies of this, so we'll do sort of like uh, we do with the 60-second review and go back and forth. It's a battle of wits. Um, Just talking about the book itself like we normally do. And right off the bat, this was a fantastic surprise when it came in the mail because I forgot we were getting review copies of it and cracked it open immediately. Oh, I guess I should back up. For those of you guys who don't know, Robert B. Sherman is Richard Sherman's brother. They wrote all the songs for Mary Poppins, uh, It's a Small World, a lot of theme park attraction music. So yeah, gotta get that out of the way. But How do you not know the, the Sherman brothers? Know, if you're listening to the show and you don't know who the Sherman brothers but, are, shame but, on you. Yeah, I know, shame on you. So uh, the book was just published at the end of 2013, and I'm flipping to the back of my copy now, including the index. It's got 458 pages. It's a large book, but I have to admit, I loved it. I was totally surprised by how much I enjoyed it. And it, it wasn't quite like a page turner, like, you know, a really great novel like Hollow World by Nick Pobierski. But it it keeps you, you do want to read more. You want to see his life story, see how it turns out. And um, Jeff and I were talking about this before the show. They mention in the foreword, his son, Robert J. Sherman, mentions that when he first read it, he was disappointed with it because it's very nonlinear. It doesn't start with his birth, you know, and then with his death. I mean, it starts with the war, you know, World War II. And it's it's immediately it grabs you and it doesn't stop until the end of the book. Yeah, really. and I, I think what really all right, let, let me let me start again. I think even <laughs> we need to say that on top of being a brilliant songwriter, um, he is a brilliant writer as well. Yes, and I don't, yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that because the book itself is to me so beautifully written like i was kind of surprised at how well it was written to be honest with you you know he he was a writer and he wrote really well but you were talking about how long the book is how many pages it has i think what helped it in my mind was that each quote-unquote chapter was pretty much his own self-contained story so you know i forget how many there was we'll just say 30 because it was broken (laughs) up into those 30 short stories essentially about his life to me 
and made it a lot easier to digest. So sure, I didn't read it as quickly as I read some other books, but it made it easier for me to read, you know, two, three, four at a time, put it down, you know, and come back to it in a couple of days and read another handful of stories. And mm -hmm. granted, they, like you said, they were not linear, which in some cases, you know, it helped, in some cases it didn't, but every story was very insightful, very meaningful, and I was very, very happy with the overall product. I, I, I have to agree with you on that. I mean, they say at the beginning of the book, um, Robert B. Sherman, not his son, that, you know, a lot of what's covered in here is not going to be covered in Walt's time. Uh, a lot of the stuff, I'm sorry, that was covered in Walt's time is not going to be in this book because he felt that really covered a lot of the work they did with the du Disney Studios very, very well. There are some stories about working for Disney in here, some very charming stories and some few stories that will make you scratch your head. But um, I, I was disappointed with that because not many people can get hold of Walt's time. It's, it's out of print. It's hard to get. But that shouldn't stop you from reading this book. So many stories. There were a lot I was, of stories I was surprised with, too, where I was almost like this is going into some dark places in some of yes. them. And I mean, definitely not a Disney published book, obviously. Like you can no, tell right no. off the bat by the content. But like to me, it was fascinating to learn more about him as a yes. human being and his thoughts and his feelings and it, i i really appreciated how open and honest he was about his life and his experiences and even his the quote-unquote feud uh with his brother that you know was very prominent in the film the boys it was yeah. very enlightening to hear his side of it and how it how blown out of proportion the film makes it to make it you know more dramatic for a film yeah and that's i thought that walking away with that hearing his side of the story really makes me want to hear Richard's side as well. I would love for him to tackle something like this of this nature, although he's not a writer, a musician, of course, a composer. But, you know, the stories that he tells, I mean, you go from World War II to growing up in New York as a child, then spending his teen years in California, then back into Europe, time spent in Mexico, visiting friends, short jaunts to Florida, uh, girlfriends breaking his heart you know and dealing with depression and uh, a bum knee all of his life due yeah. to uh, a bullet and some surgery and being addicted to pills and having to defeat that meeting his wife falling in love with his wife through the book I thought, you know, what an amazing woman. The this entire was. story, again, non-linear, but it was great to get it in yes. these chunks, and it made me appreciate him even more as a person. Mm -hmm. And I, I really feel like I can't recommend this book more, like enough. Like it's great. I loved it. I, it wasn't what I was expecting it to be. It was much, much better, and I, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I, I wish he had found more acclaim as an author. And, you know, if some of his paintings were showcased, I mean, he was a fantastic painter. And that wasn't discovered till a few years before his death, that he had a talent at that. Um, I, you mentioned earlier the feud. I'm glad to hear his side of it and that it wasn't as much as it was. I think a lot of Disney fans can take that to heart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that it's it's worth it. But, you know, I have to agree with you. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And I love the tiny little stories that Robert ran into so many famous people on the cusp of them being famous, like Elvis Presley, 
Um, <laughs> all these huge yeah, people. A lot that, of those things were crazy. I'm like, this, this is ridiculous. It, I'm I'm gonna start re referring to that kind of thing as the Rolly effect, where you know <laughs> these people that we, we admire in Disney, they have all these run-ins with famous cultural icons that we never yes. expected, and it, it, the same was true for for this book. I mean, there were so many unexpected stories, and it just made it all all the more better to me. I, I agree. Um, definitely pick up a copy of this book. I think it's well worth it for any Disney fan, especially if you're a fan of the Sherman Brothers. A ton of insight into what made them tick, what made them fantastic writing partners. And, you know, you sort of see what happened to their career uh, throughout the years and how they almost had some resurgences. Uh, but once again, the title of this book is Moose, Chapters from My Life by Robert B. Sherman. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. The Disney Vacation Club booth near Under the Sea Journey of the Little Mermaid in the Magic Kingdom holds some really cool little details. Now, keeping with the Little Mermaid theme, there is an amazing map along the back wall of that building. Now, the map points out some famous destinations around the world, like Australia, and South Africa, and Disneyland, and Walt well, Disney World, because of course you have those on all the maps. Mm -hmm. But when you look a little bit closer, you'll find that some of the images on the map, especially in the water, they may look a little familiar. Namely, there's one of a dragon att attacking a ship, and there's one of a sea monster that's swallowing a ship, and there's one of uh, sirens that are causing a shipwreck. Obviously, a lot of ship-related things because of The Little Mermaid. But all three of these drawings, and there's actually a fourth one as well, they can be found inside the extended queue of Under the Sea Journey of the Little Mermaid, painted on a dome, uh, the dome ceiling, which is a poem has a poem about the sea, tying the entire area together. And that fourth painting featured in the queue, that is actually concept art of Ursula from The Little Mermaid when they were first putting the film together. So, kind of cool that they kind of played it all together. That's awesome. That's like like five or six or eight five-legged goats. Yeah, it's a whole it's bunch, a bunch of little details at once. I like that. I like that we a need, lot. We need to come up with a name like, you know, when you have more than one five-legged goat. When... Like, you know, like you have a gander or a murder of crows. A murder of crows. Something like that. What do you oh, call it? a so, group of goats? So, okay, okay. All right, cadets. Send us your emails. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter with what you think we should call a group of five-legged goats. That are all together in one. That are all together in one. Like That's a, a good penta, idea. A penta something or something. And we'll have some sort of prize we'll give out. We're not sure what. But it'll be something. You are you are witnessing Communicore magic right now because I just thought of this and Jeff agreed and we went with it and we're Boom. going with it. Boom. This is how magic happens. Maybe it'll be a date with one of us in one of the parks. Probably. I'm okay huh. with that. Because I'm going to I don't win anyways. it because then I have to go on a date with you. That'd be horrible. Oh, that'd be... Oh, God. Yeah. Let's well, I'm not, not going to enter. Forget it. Okay, well, don't forget to send your unofficial submissions to our unofficial contest naming a group of five-legged goats that are together. Um, and thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode. Yeah, thanks a lot. Leave us a, a comment and give us a rating on iTunes if you get a chance. We'd really appreciate it. Yep. So email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com and, you know, maybe tell us what you think the grouping of goats should be. Of course. And you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep. And follow us uh, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can call us on the Communicore Weekly Goat line at 424-785-4628. Yeah, you can also leave what you think the goat thing should be on the goat line. Exactly. Awesome. We can do this. So, okay. And do not forget to 
Uh, run as fast as you can to iTunes or Amazon or CD Baby to pick up a copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical. Trust us, you will love it. You will thank us. You will sing these songs forever. Yes, you will. Ever. Okay, well, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for launching and listening to us, guys and girls. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Bye.